0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, the book of Romans, chapter 5, continued. I hope you've been enjoying Romans. Um, It gets a little complicated, but we've just scratched the surface. And as we return to Romans chapter 5 we had just finished learning of Paul's approach to explaining how the gospel works and he's doing it by a comparison he's making between Adam and Yeshua so in chapter, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 Paul stated this Here's how it works. It was through one individual that sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And in this way, death passed through the whole human race inasmuch as everyone sinned. Now Christianity, as it kind of has a habit of doing, has taken this verse and turned it into a doctrine. And it gave that doctrine a name, and made it fundamental to our christian faith the doctrine of original sin now most believers are aware of the church's teaching on the original the doctrine of the original sin of adam however as we saw last week there are variations on it and i told you about six of them no matter paul's theology his entire understanding of what Yeshua's sacrificial death accomplished rests on the proposition of of Adam's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, and that it introduced sin into the human race, if not into the entire world in general, and That sin brought death in as a consequence. Now let me be clear. Paul implies that sin did not exist in humans prior to Adam's trespass of eating the forbidden fruit. Thus, death did not exist in humans before that moment. So Paul links sin and death as having an unbreakable bond. If you have one, you have the other. Now, some believe that death in the animal kingdom also did not exist. And in fact, neither did time as we know it exist until Adam sinned. Well now, why might time not have existed before then? Because time is essentially a measure of decay. And decay is the process of dying. Yeshua said this in Matthew six nineteen and 20. We're, you're all familiar with this. Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth where moths and rust destroy and burglars break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and burglars do not break in or steal. Now, Rust, oxidation, is decay so when Christ describes the conditions here on earth he explains how moths and and, and rust gradually degrade and ultimately destroy physical things but, he says, in heaven there's no moths (laughs) that's good and there's no rust to destroy he is describing decay in terms suitable for his era If there's no decay, think about this, if there is no decay, then all that exists remains in its pristine state forever. We have a name for that, eternity, eternity all dimensions of existence, whether there are only the three dimensions of space that we see all around us, and there may be more dimensions, as mathematical models suggest, as many physicists think there are. These are necessarily dimensions, these three dimensions, that either have time as one of its elements or some of these dimensions we don't know anything about have eternity possibly as one of its elements see time and eternity cannot coexist because eternity so that as the Bible attests is an existence without time and thus without decay so perhaps the universe was originally created as three eternal dimensions. The fourth dimension, time, may have been part of the, of the consequence of Adam's sin. Or perhaps better put, maybe time erupted the instant death erupted because they're fused together as one. One with one actually being the measure of the other. Thus the fourth dimension can be seen as a kind of a curse laid upon the three original dimensions. By the addition of time, three timeless dimensions were changed to three time-limited dimensions. Dimensions. I know it's a little heavy. But the Bible, Old and New Testaments, fundamentally approaches death as what? The ultimate curse. The question then is what can be done about it? Because little has terrified humans since Adam and Eve more than the prospect of our own mortality. Over the eons, rich people have spent enormous sums of money trying to defeat the effects of time and to cheat death. So I set this radical proposition before you. The gospel is, as Paul states, the only possible remedy for Adam's sin. There's no other solution. But even more, the gospel is meant to reverse death and decay because the gospel will literally usher in life from the dead for humans who trust in God. Even the three dimensions that we all live in will eventually be renewed. Never again to be cursed by the existence of the fourth dimension of time. Because time will no longer exist. And if it can truly be counted... As a dimension, then the fourth dimension will cease being a dimension of time. Instead, it will become a dimension of eternity. Now does that sound like science fiction? I mean, where in the world would Tom Bradford come up with such pseudo-science babble? All mixed up with religion and God and expect you to believe such a thing. Where in the world would I get that stuff? Listen to Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then we'll move into Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. Also I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God's Shekinah is with mankind and He will live with them and they'll be His people and He Himself, God with them, will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning, crying, pain, because the old order has passed away. And then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Also, he said, Right, these words are true and they're trustworthy. And he said to me, It's done. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I myself will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. He who wins the victory will receive these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Moving on to Revelation 22. Next the angel showed me the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And between the main street and the river was the tree of life producing twelve kinds of fruit, a different kind every month. The leaves of the tree were for healing the nations. No longer will there be any curses. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist. So they will need neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because Adonai God will shine upon them and they will reign as kings forever and ever. Do I get an amen for that? Hey, that's how I feel about it. See, folks, I took us on this route to open our lesson today because too much we speak of and think of the gospel in a much too limited way we think of it in church terms. We think of it as getting saved and then being nice to everybody. Well, some of us anyway. We think of it in terms of how one gains membership to a group. And of course we think of it in terms of when we die, we get to go to heaven instead of that other place. But the gospel is far greater. It's much more expansive than that. The gospel affects everything that exists because Adam's sin and the resultant curse of death affects everything that exists. It is no wonder that that while on a limited basis and by God's grace the blood of animals could indeed atone for human sins but the blood of bulls and goats could not literally push the reset button on the universe. The sacrificial blood of sheep and cattle could not bring us an entirely new creation process but Christ's blood could in fact it did and as it plays out the gospel is in the process of bringing us to an entirely new creation where sin isn't even a possibility and since sin isn't possible it is not possible then neither is death and decay. This is why Paul was driven to take this good news to the world at any personal cost. And it's why we should be driven as well. I mean, what a message of hope in a world that has precious little to hope for. Let's reread a portion of Romans chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 12 and go to the end. Page 1407, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Here's how it works. It was through one individual that sin entered the world, and through sin, death. Death. And in this way, death passed through to the whole human race, inasmuch as everyone sinned. Now, sin was indeed present in the world before Torah was given, but sin is not counted as such when there is no Torah. Nevertheless, death ruled from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not exactly like Adam's violation of a direct command. In this, Adam prefigured the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if, because of one man's offense, many died, then how much more has God's grace, that is, the gracious gift of one man, Yeshua the Messiah, overflowed to many? No, the free gift is not like what resulted from one man sinning. For from one sinner came judgment. That brought condemnation. But the free gift came after many offenses and it brought acquittal. For if because of the offense of one man death ruled through that one man how much more will those receiving this overflowing grace that is the gift of being considered righteous rule in life through the one man Yeshua the Messiah. In other words, just as As it was through one offense that all people came under condemnation, so it is through one righteous act that all people come to be considered righteous. For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the other man many will be made righteous. And the Torah came into the picture so that the offense would proliferate. But where sin proliferated, grace proliferated even more. All this happened so that just as sin ruled by means of death, so also grace might rule through causing people to be considered righteous so that they might have eternal life through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. So in verse 12, Paul tells us about the effects of the original sin and how death was initially introduced into humanity, possibly into the universe, and how it propagates. It came through the wrong deed of merely one man, Adam. But in verse 13, Paul returns to less of a theological, more of a logical, rational argument about sin in relation to the Torah. Now, just so you know, I'm going to use the terms Torah and the Law of Moses somewhat interchangeably today. He says, simple logic tells us that mankind existed a long time before God gave the Torah to Moses so if it is the law of Moses that is the sole source of what tells us what sin is then what about that time in between Adam and Moses when there was no law of Moses And Paul says, yes, of course sin was in the world before Moses. I mean, how can anybody seriously argue that point? However, he goes on to say something, I think, rather confusing. In fact, it's at this point that many good, honest Bible commentators will say that the remainder of Romans chapter 5 is very difficult and it contains some ambiguities that could allow us to legitimately understand Paul's words in more than one way. So Paul says to in verse 13, but sin is not counted as sin when there is no law, no Torah. What? I mean, what does that mean? See, I thought back in chapters 1 and 2 that Paul had made his case, it doesn't matter whether the law of Moses was in existence or whether Gentiles didn't have any knowledge of the law because the natural law that is known to all human beings from Adam onward tells us plainly God's standard of right and wrong what God wants, what He doesn't want from human beings. Thus there exists a kind of a Torah, let's say a kind of a law, that's not the law of Moses, against which all humanity in all eras are measured, and so all humans can sin before God and rightfully be judged by God. Hey, Adam didn't have the law of Moses. Yet, his sin changed the nature of the world. Now we have to be careful here not to take Paul's statement that where there is no law, no Torah, then sin can't be counted as sin. We can't take that too rigidly or too universally, nor especially. From, can we take it from a modern western mindset which unfortunately we all have See, this statement is one of a few that Paul makes that has resulted in some pretty dubious Christian doctrines a misunderstanding of this admittedly difficult statement of Paul has caused the bulk of Christianity to make it a church axiom that since without the law of Moses then there can be no sin therefore just how dumb the Jews are today and how dumb and misguided those Israelites of old must have been to have actually followed the law of Moses because if they had just refused to follow it they could have avoided sinning and guess what? It's even more so for Christians. I mean, by believers refusing to know anything about the law of Moses, we are supposedly made safe from sinning. Well, if that's the case, then non-Christians have it even better. They certainly don't know anything about the law. So these non-believers can't possibly sin because they don't know the law in order to disobey it, right? Then if they can't sin because they don't know anything about the law, why would their non-existent sins need to be atoned for by Christ? And I hope you see that such a doctrine is essentially a circular firing squad. I mean, it's self-evident that whatever it is that Paul intends here it's certainly not that so what might he mean I'm going to give you my opinion but that's all it is it's my opinion I'll necessarily have to pepper in some explanation as we go along here part of what we're dealing with is that there is no Greek word for Torah And there is just one Greek word typically favored to express a law or a regulation or even just an established custom. That word in Greek is nomos. Nomos. Now we know from the context of a passage that sometimes when Paul speaks of law, nomos, he speaks specifically about the law of Moses, the Torah. But at other times when he speaks of the law, he's speaking of Jewish law, halakha. And yet at other times when he employs that same exact term, nomos, it's used to describe the law of God that all men have within us, Gentile or Jew, what Judeo-Christianity has come to call the natural law. So when the Greek word nomos is used by Paul, it can legitimately mean at least three different things. The law of Moses, or the natural law, or it can mean Jewish law. Now I'm baffled, frankly, as to why Paul didn't see the need to insert a word or two to help his readers differentiate between those three possibilities although he occasionally does I can only guess that he assumed that the context made it plain or that because these letters of his always were sent to synagogues where the believers in his day gathered then he took it for granted that the Jews would naturally understand his meaning And if necessary, explain it to the believing Gentiles who also attended these synagogues and their congregational meetings. Now I think it's also highly likely that many times in Paul's own mind he did not make a strong distinction between the law of Moses and Jewish law. As a Pharisee, he would have easily accepted as correct many of the rabbinic interpretations of the law that had become traditions. So there was no need to be too terribly precise to say whether he was speaking directly about Holy Scripture or about an interpretation of the Holy Scripture. In his mind they were too close together, all right, to necessarily separate however because since the late 2nd century there has been a doctrinal bent by gentile christians against jews and also against the law of moses a bent by the way that the church made into law in the 4th century then whenever the term uh, whenever paul uses the term law nomos in greek it is nearly always interpreted to mean the law of Moses. This is especially so when a statement about the law is seen as Paul saying something negative about it. So I'm going to use my own words to paraphrase what I think it is that Paul is meaning. Then I'll explain why I think that's so. So I think what he was saying is sin was indeed present in the world before the law of Moses was given. But sin is not counted as sin when there is no divine law. In other words, Paul is saying that it's self-evident that there was sin before Moses. So logically, there had to be laws of God in existence Even if those laws didn't come from the law of Moses. Now, this assumption is because if there weren't any laws of God, there truly was no way to sin. I mean, the very definition of sin is breaking God's laws. Poor Adam. Adam was given one law don't eat the fruit. That's it. He rebelled. He broke the one law that God gave him. Adam sinned. And since Romans chapter 1, Paul has been explaining that sin is not only associated with the violations of the law of Moses, sin is also associated with violations of the natural law or any direct law that God might give a person. Paul has just used the example of Adam, who certainly didn't have the law of Moses, and yet by a divine law that God directly pronounced to Adam, don't you eat that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he broke that law. What happened? It brought death into the world. So even though there was a long time of history where there was no law of Moses that does not mean there weren't any laws of God in existence. And when a human broke those laws any human at any time it was counted as sin. And as Paul explained earlier that's why all human beings not just Jews liable to sinning and thus to experiencing God's wrath so the sin of violating the natural law or even a special law just directed at only one person is just as deadly for the sinner as it is for violating the law of Moses so the reason that Paul said what he said in verse 13 something that is so confusing to us in our time it's because he's talking about the period of time in between Adam and Moses before there was such a thing as the law of Moses he was addressing the straw man that he's been debating with since the beginning of Romans and Paul's straw man has incorrectly surmised but sin is impossible without the law of Moses it's impossible and as it turns out That actually was the belief within mainstream Judaism of Paul's day. Do you know that? That's what they believed. Paul, of course, then, was acutely aware of it. And he was refuting that thought. Because it went against his theology concerning the gospel. Now verse 14, I think, goes a long way towards validating my opinion about the intent of verse 13. That is, Paul says that even though Adam received a direct, a personal commandment from God that he violated, the entire human race that came from Adam continued sinning, in each in his own way, and so experienced death. Yet humans couldn't possibly have committed the same sin Adam did because humans were no longer allowed to live in the garden where the forbidden tree was located. Thus there had to be some common unspoken divine laws that humans violated. Or as Paul phrases it, the sinners were those whose sinning was not exactly like Adam's violation of a direct command. Paul ends verse 14 by saying that Adam prefigured someone who would come later. Paul is alluding to Christ. Yet in verse 15, after just saying that Adam prefigured Christ, Paul nuances his statement by saying that even so, there are differences between Adam and Yeshua. See, these are the kinds of things that Paul does that drives Bible academics crazy. He says that the free gift from Yeshua, what is that free gift? Righteousness. Righteousness is not like the offense that Adam committed. He says that because of the bad deed of one man, many have died. However, from the good deed of a different man, Yeshua God's grace has come to just as many and that because of the bad deed of one man every human being has been judicially condemned to death however because of the good deed of one man a judicial pardon is available even more that pardon is a free gift So in verse 17, Paul says that because death and sin are blood brothers, Adam's sin opened the door for the dominion of death to enter in and rule over all of mankind. However, because God offers the free gift of righteousness to sinners, made possible by Yeshua's death on the cross, then this has opened the door for the dominion of life to enter in and rule over mankind. So the Adam-caused dominion of death gets counteracted by the Yeshua-caused dominion of life. The point to notice from the perspective of trying to understand where Paul's going with this is that even though he first says that Adam prefigured Christ, it is not a comparison of Like for like that Paul winds up making, but rather it's quite a stark contrast. Adam caused judgment, Yeshua caused righteousness. Adam caused death. Yeshua caused life. Other than the comparison that two human men caused all these things to happen to many other humans. What is produced from these two men are opposite results. Now, before we go further, I want to explain some things about Paul that you may have already been picking up on. Perhaps it'll help you in your personal study. Paul tends to communicate in a somewhat casual conversational style, so it's not unusual for him to make a rather bold, I think even brash statement and then walk it back a little bit. Because he knows he may have gone just a tad overboard and he's found himself suddenly heading in a direction he really didn't intend to go. He also tends to discuss a, discuss a faith issue or a God principle, or an area of theology that might have several complex aspects to it. But he highlights only one or two of the aspects and he doesn't confront the other aspects at all. Without a more thorough reading, it can seem to Bible students that those one or two aspects Paul highlights are the only aspects of that particular issue or principle that exists or perhaps are the only aspects of any importance even though that's not the case. My conclusion is that this highlighting he does has everything to do with whom he's talking to and what the specific agenda is he's trying to communicate. Paul rightly assumes that anyone reading his letters is directly associated with the congregation to whom he's writing, whether it's at Ephesus, or Corinth, or Rome. And despite what the institutional church has done with his letters, that is, to, to make them out to be some kind of general theological proclamations and teachings applicable to all Christians in all circumstances. That's far from the case. And for centuries, the assertion of theologians has been that when taken together, Paul's letters are his intentional, organized system of Christian theology that Paul is carefully crafting. And I thoroughly deny that that's the case. That is not what's going on here. So in verse 18, when he explains something he's already addressed two or three times just in this section, he says that just as it was one offense, one sin, that brought all human beings under condemnation, Adam's original sin, so it is that with one righteous act, Yeshua going to the cross, that all people, all people, he says, may be considered righteous. He's just speaking using very sweeping words, but at the same time he's dealing with a very narrow issue. For instance, saying that because of this righteous act, presumably of Yeshua, all people can be considered righteous, that's simply not true. He has taken the Adam Adam pattern a little too far, typical Paul. And while it is true that Adam's sin indeed brought death to all people who would come after him, it is definitely not true that Christ's sacrifice brings righteousness to all people. So again, typical Paul, he just made another bold statement, he's gone overboard a little bit and so in verse 19 he starts to walk his statement back. In verse 19 he says that through the disobedience of one man, Adam many were made sinners. So through the obedience of one man, Yeshua, many will be made righteous wait a minute just a second ago he said all people were made righteous by Christ's sacrifice now it's many what happened it is simply Paul being Paul it's just his style and he loves to use metaphors and analogies and, and, and fitting for his era he takes some poetic liberties to make it impactful I'm in no way denigrating Paul. I'm not criticizing him. I'm not saying Paul's suspect. I'm saying that of the many writers of the Bible, Paul is the last one. We should be plucking out one of his statements and making it into a church doctrine. Because very likely he'll have more to say on that topic and you know what? He's going to say something different about it next time. Now in verses 18 and 19 they are a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Some denominations prefer verse 18. So they say Paul's theology is the entire world, every last human being has been redeemed by Christ's death, period. It's just that only some realize their redemption, some don't. This is actually an understanding within the Catholic Church, among other churches. And it was emphasized by Pope Francis fairly recently, and Pope John Paul II some years ago. Here's a quote from Pope John Paul II. In the Holy Spirit, every individual, all people have become through the cross and resurrection of Christ children of God, partakers in the divine nature and heirs to eternal life. All are redeemed, all are called to share in the glory of Jesus Christ without any distinction of language, race, nation or culture. All, everybody. However, to those denominations that prefer to lean on verse 19 then it is only some people who will be saved, the remainder won't be. The saved were in some heavenly lottery and they were elected or they were predestined by God to be saved. This is a precept that Calvin held. See, it's critical in all Bible books to look at the immediate but then also the broader Context of what's being said on any particular subject or within any particular passage, or we can find ourselves losing our bearings and coming up with some, some incorrect conclusions. It is especially so with the Apostle Paul. We must not only look at it an entire chapter, but rather an entire book letter that he's written. Sometimes we even have to look to all of Paul's letters as a whole to distill his actual theology on any given principle. At times we must keep at the forefront of our minds that even though he was Christ's personally chosen apostle to the Gentiles, he was not a Gentile. Paul was still a Jew of Jews and a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to his own description of himself. He thought like a Jew. You know why? He was a Jew. That was his cultural upbringing. He thought in the religious terms of Judaism because he was trained. At the elite school of Judaism in Jerusalem, at the count at the academy of Gamaliel, Paul couldn't get into the mind of a Gentile because he wasn't one. Indeed, because he was a diaspora Jew, he did have a have certain social comfort level with. He had a little bit of tolerance for Gentiles that Holy Land Jews didn't have. But even when Paul is directly addressing Gentiles, he uses Jewish thoughts and terms to communicate because that's who he was. See, we must always understand Paul within his Jewish cultural character and recognize that some of the especially difficult and ambiguous things he says are very likely Jewish cultural expressions. Commonly used in his day, but whose meanings have become lost to history. This is what makes reading Paul both fascinating and frustrating and fraught with potholes. So now, in verse 20, Paul starts to pull it together. He pulls together what he's been saying into a conclusion, which is for the purpose of establishing a doctrine and I'm going to tell you in advance that what he has been saying about the law of Moses would have been shocking it would have been insulting to most of his Jewish readers he has put the Torah in a less than stellar light now no doubt he intended to shock them you don't shock people by being gentle and diplomatic something which Paul would have been ill suited for anyway So he says that the reason that the law of Moses was created by God then given to Israel when he gave it was so that offenses against God would increase. Now, where we find the word proliferate in our complete Jewish Bible sin would proliferate or increase or abound in other English versions the Greek word is planazo, planazo See now this word means to superabound, to increase super abundantly. It is a word that indicates an extreme amount of growth. However, says Paul, to counteract the super amount of increase of sin that the law would produce, the Lord would super increase grace to an even higher level. Paul's done it again. He's made a bold, brash statement that essentially reduces the purpose and the scope of the Torah. The Jews venerated an ancient holy book to something mostly negative, if not intrinsically faulty. And rather than causing righteousness to come about, the law causes sins and curses to explode to unheard of levels. I mean, to hear Paul tell it thus far in the book of Romans the Torah is akin to a Trojan horse it's a Trojan horse sent by God to his chosen people yet says verse 21 this is all part of God's plan for grace to overtake sin and death as the ruler of the world and this Torah that causes sin ironically brings on more grace the grace causes more people to be righteous by God And in the end, they all wind up with eternal life. Now first, while this is a great piece of hyperbole, it is also Paul speaking truthfully and accurately about one narrow aspect of a very complex subject, the Torah, the law. He knows, as does anyone, as do you know, who have seriously studied the Torah, the Torah was given as a blessing. Specifically says so. And as a gift of life by God to His people. It's repeated over and over within the Torah. Choose life. Second, as exaggerated and negative as Paul has made his comment about the purpose of the Torah, nonetheless, it exposes a great truth about humanity it is that the more we're told not what, to, uh, what not to do man, the more we want to do it there is something about long lists of do's and don'ts that just energizes our evil inclinations our evil inclinations want to do whatever it is that God does not want us to do and vice versa The law in its detail, in its explanation, comprehensively reveals God's will for our lives. The generality of that natural law, now it's given way to the explicitness of the law of Moses. There's no hiding now from our behavior or our thoughts because there's no ambiguity with the law we don't have to wonder if we're doing right or wrong the law of Moses makes it clear not only are the laws set out so are the God-ordained penalties for breaking those laws so in that sense the law increases sins the law exposes sin in our lives for what it truly is but Paul in his brashness has also created an impression in his straw man that is just bursting to come out. Can Paul really be saying that essentially the more we sin, the more grace God gives? I mean, can Paul really be implying that sin is a good thing because it increases grace? That it is practically our religious duty to sin more so that grace can be applied more grace can be applied and therefore God gets even more glory that's why God gave Torah to Moses and Israel see it's just as simple as that but even more according to the same line of reasoning suddenly God's chosen people have been put at a horrible disadvantage God rescues them from Egypt, He gives them His Torah on Mount Sinai, He demands that they obey it, and when they do, they find themselves in a much more dangerous position than the Gentiles who weren't given the Torah. I mean, after all, by Paul's logic that he's expressed, who is the most exposed to the danger of God's wrath? The people who do not have the law are the people who do. I mean, if the entire purpose of the Torah is to create more sin, well, what's the benefit of following the Torah? Why would God even do that to Israel? I mean, Paul seems to have dug himself into a deep hole. Next week, we'll begin chapter six and see how he digs himself out. <laughs>